0: Well, if you've ever been to Beeson Divinity School, you've seen uh, the beautiful Hodges Chapel here. You know how important saints are to our school. They're populating the beautiful dome of Hodges Chapel, 16 of the saints throughout the history of the church. In fact, our seminary hymn, the one we sing every semester at the very beginning of the academic year, is for All the Saints by Ralph von Williams. So we think a lot about saints around Beeson, even though it's a problematic term in a lot of ways. We're going to hear a lecture about saints today, saints from a Lutheran perspective. And our speaker is the Reverend Dr. Sarah Henlicky Wilson. Dr. Wilson gave this lecture as a part of the Reformation Heritage Lecture. She gave at Beeson, a little while ago, and she's speaking out of her own research and her own interest on the role of saints in the Christian life, especially seen as a Protestant and as a Lutheran. This is really interesting. And you're going to enjoy her beginning description of a great hymn by Martin Luther. So let's listen to Dr. Sarah Hinlicky Wilson talking about soundings in Lutheran spirituality, saints.
1: I'm sure you will not be surprised to learn that I am opening this final lecture with reference to a hymn. Luther's first in fact. But I think its contents will surprise you. I'll start with the circumstances that led to its composition. On july first, fifteen twenty three, Johannes van Den Eschen and Henricus Vos were burned at the stake by church authorities, making them the first two martyrs of the Reformation. They had been arrested the year before, along with all the other members of their their chapter of Augustinian friars in Antwerp, today's Belgium. The others were released after recanting, except for a third, Lambert Thorne, who held his ground along with Johannes and Henricus. These three were kept in prison until the following year when Johannes and Henricus were executed and Lambert was put back in prison to give him more time to recant. It was erroneously reported that Lambert also was burned several days later, though in fact he remained in prison without recanting until his death in 1528. Whether Lambert died of natural causes or was killed remains unclear. Why should the first Reformation martyrs have come from the Low Countries and not Germany? The Augustinians of both Antwerp and Wittenberg belonged to the province of Saxony under Vicar General Johann von Staupitz, Luther's beloved mentor. These groups met together every three years. It seems likely that the Antwerp Augustinians, and possibly the eventual martyrs themselves, were present in Heidelberg in 1518 when Luther presented his theses on the theology of the cross that we now know as the Heidelberg Disputation. In any event, the Antwerp Augustinians were outspoken opponents of indulgences. Pope Adrian VI was a former prior of the Antwerp house, so there may have been extra attention on the area at that time, too. Luther was deeply moved by the willingness of these two young men to give their lives for the evangelical faith. He understood the execution as God's way of confirming evangelical teaching by creating martyrs, as in the days of the early church. But he also took it as a judgment against himself for not having been worthy enough to be called to martyrdom first. His response was a genre unprecedented in his career to that point, a hymn. Luther wrote his hymn a little over a month after the execution took place. The hymn is in the form of a news ballad used to spread current events from town to town in Luther's day. That makes the hymn unique not only as Luther's first, but also as the only hymn he ever wrote in this genre. Intriguingly, though the form was abandoned by Luther and other Lutheran hymn writers, this hymn of his may well be the original inspiration for the flood of Anabaptist martyr hymns written in the decades to come, one of the more curious cases of ecumenical overlap. The most profound aspect of this hymn is how Luther depicts the agency of the respective actors in the drama. As should be expected, he frames the whole hymn in terms of God's action. We begin by singing about what our God himself hath done, praise honor to him bringing. We conclude in the confidence that his hand, when once extended, withdraws not till he's finished. It is God who, at Brussels in the Netherlands, by two boys martyrs youthful, He showed the wonders of his hand, whom he with favor truthful so richly hath adorned. This martyrdom is clearly God's doing. But God's agency in the martyrdom is what undergirds the agency of the martyrs themselves. The two young men can also be praised without detracting from the praise of God. The boys they stood firm as a tower and mocked the sophists' trouble. Two huge great fires they kindled then, the boys they carried to them. Great wonder seized on every man, for with contempt they view them. To all with joy they yielded quite, with singing and God-praising. The intertwining of the two agencies, divine and human, appears most powerfully in verse 6. Then gracious God did grant to them to pass true priesthood's border and offer up themselves to him and enter Christ's own order. God gives them the ability to give themselves to him as a fitting sacrifice. By contrast, the sophists of Louvain who condemn the friars are under the thumb of powers other than themselves, in no way free at all. They are driven either by the old archfiend or by their guilty conscience that grinds them further. The same perspective on divine and human agency comes through in a personal letter Luther wrote in early 1524 to Lambert Thorne, still languishing in prison. He writes, Dear Brother Lambert, Christ, who is in you, has given me abundant testimony that you do not need my words, for he himself suffers in you and is glorified in you. He is taken captive in you and reigns in you. He is oppressed in you and triumphs in you. He has given you that holy knowledge of himself which is hidden from the world. Not only this, but he strengthens you inwardly by his spirit in these outward tribulations and consoles you with the double example of John and Henry. Luther explicitly calls Johannes and Henricus martyrs and saints in many places in his writings, and they weren't the only ones. In December 1524, another friar associated with the Antwerp house, named Henry von Zutphen, was murdered by an angry mob. The following spring, Luther published a commentary on Psalm 9, speaking to the situation of persecution, along with a full-fledged martyrological account called The Burning of Brother Henry, modeled on the martyrdom stories of the early church. Later, Luther added to the number of evangelical martyrs Matthias Weibel, Kaspar Tauber, and Georg Buchführer. After yet another evangelical preacher, Leonhard Kaiser, was burned in Austria in 1527, Luther published the account of an eyewitness, which Luther explicitly calls a saint's life. In addition, he often referred to John Huss, the 14th century bohemian reformer burned at the Council of Constance, as a true saint, this same Huss, whose 600th death anniversary we observe this year, and who supports your pulpits along with three others. Later in his career, Luther endorsed a number of projects to put better saint stories out there. For example, the writings of John Huss, or Savonarola, and the lives of the early church fathers. While Luther remained critical of many saint stories for being simply false, to the end of his life, he would refer to the ancient saints as positive role models. For instance, he held up the example of Saints Agnes, Agatha, and Lucy as good reason for young girls to receive an education. In 1535, in his preface to the Confession of Lazarus Spengler, the lay leader of the Reformation in Nuremberg, Luther describes in detail his hopes for this program of purified hagiography. He writes, Next to the Holy Scripture... There is indeed no book more helpful for Christendom than the legends of the dear saints, especially those which are pure and authentic. For example, and then we find such sweet descriptions of how the saints believed God's word from their hearts, confessed it with their mouths, praised it with their deeds, and honored and confirmed it with their suffering and death. All of these things give immeasurable comfort and strength to the weak in faith and they make those who are already strong even more courageous and bold. If we teach the scriptures alone, without the examples and stories of the saints, though the Spirit does work abundantly within, nevertheless it is a very powerful help if we also hear or see the examples of others externally. Would you have ever believed that Martin Luther could say such a thing? But he did, and it's true. Stories of true saints can serve the purposes of the gospel. Clearly, then, Luther didn't have a problem with identifying certain figures in the history of the church as saints. To be sure, he had a problem with false saints. He had a problem with piety that placed more trust in saints than in Jesus Christ, he had a problem with the lucrative business that rose up around relics, indulgences, and pilgrimages. He had a problem with calling upon the saints in prayer. But he didn't have a problem with the saints themselves. He didn't even have a problem with the right kind of piety toward them. Luther's reforming strategy was always to get rid of the abuse, not the thing being abused, whether that was images in the church belief in Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, the pastoral office, or infant baptism. The Augsburg Confession of 1530, which laid out the evangelical position on disputed matters for the emperor and became the charter document of Lutheranism, states plainly, we teach that saints may be remembered in order that we imitate their faith and good works according to our calling. Expanding on this idea, which he himself had written, Philip Melanchthon, in his Apology to the Augsburg Confession, outlines a program for evangelical saint veneration. He writes, Our confession approves giving honor to the saints. This honor is threefold. The first is thanksgiving. We ought to give thanks to God because he has given examples of his mercy, because he has shown that he wants to save humankind, and because he has given teachers and other gifts to the church. Since these are the greatest gifts, they ought to be extolled very highly, and we ought to praise the saints themselves for faithfully using these gifts, just as Christ praises faithful managers. The second kind of veneration is the strengthening of our faith. When we see Peter forgiven after his denial we too are encouraged to believe that grace truly superabounds much more over sin. The third honor is imitation, first of their faith, then of their other virtues, which people should imitate according to their callings. What Melanchthon includes, and in what order, is notable. Saints are not to be called upon or trusted for help and imitating their ways is only the third of the three forms of veneration. The first and foremost veneration is to thank God for them, for his generosity in sending them to the church to build it up. Second comes the strengthening of our faith. Note Melanchthon's emphasis on the sins of the saints with his example of Peter, which Melanchthon does not consider a contradiction in terms. Why then call them saints? Melanchthon's third form of veneration asserts that the main thing to imitate from the saints is their faith. It is not perfection, but the continual and faithful return to God in hope and trust, asking for the forgiveness of their sins that makes people saints. So too should we follow their example of faith, and only secondarily their works— but even, in this case, only according to our own callings. Melanchthon does not ask for a flat-footed or slavish imitation, but a contextualized interpretation of the saints' lives in our own. Despite all this, it is obvious enough that long-term the evangelical movement did not cultivate a practice of venerating the saints of church history in any significant way. It did linger on in some ways for a while. Nikolaus Hermann, who we heard about two days ago, wrote hymns also on ancient martyrs for use in Lutheran homes. Biblical saint days were retained and celebrated with a full communion service, and even a few post-biblical saints were kept in the roster for preaching services, like Saints Catherine, Lawrence, and Martin of Tours. But, truth be told, if a saint from later than Augustine was needed— Luther himself quickly became the standard choice. Lutheran preachers were known to have preaching series covering the events of the reformer's life. There was even something akin to relics. I recently saw Der Lutherflo, the Luther flea, an unfortunate insect smashed inside one of Luther's books. Centuries ago already, it was lovingly removed, mounted, and labeled for pilgrims to behold. It appears, though, that the hardening of confessional lines in the aftermath of the Reformation, and especially the 17th century wars of religion, finally closed off the hagiographical option for Lutherans. Any kind of piety surrounding the saints would have been perceived as too dangerously Catholic. While so many other aspects of the church's medieval and early heritage were retained and reformed, the remembrance of the saints was by and large not one of them. But all it takes is a little digging to realize that all religious communities do practice hagiography, whether they mean to or not. I discovered this for myself the first time I visited, visited Wittenberg during my seminary years. It was a thrilling experience to approach the castle church where Luther posted the 95 theses and to walk down the nave only to find at the foot of the pulpits Luther's grave and Melanchthon just across the aisle. I can't say I felt any impulse to pray to Luther, but I certainly felt a surge of gratitude to God for this complex flawed but gospel-driven man whose words had taught me to love Jesus Christ. And I quickly realized how often Luther's life story had been told and retold at home and at church, forming a template for our spiritual lives, however different our own historical circumstances. How often we spoke with affection of Katerina von Bora, too, a smart and tough person in her own right, clearly the only match for anyone as difficult as Martin a pioneer in public roles for women. And then, for those of us who felt some discomfort at Luther's uglier side, especially his anti-Jewish tendencies, there was Dietrich Bonhoeffer waiting in the wings, unmistakably an advocate of the Jews, and a martyr under the detested Nazis to boot. Whatever we said about it, we Lutherans had our saints may I suggest that Lutherans are not the only Protestants with closet saints. As essential to any parish in the Church of England as the Bible and the Book of Common Prayer was John Fox's Book of Martyrs. Anabaptists and Mennonites learned the cost of discipleship from the martyr's mirror. Even the hardcore Reformed, who on the surface appear most opposed to the saints, have had such works in their past. For example, the French Book of Martyrs by Jean Crespin, published in 1554, or the Hungarian Crown of the Martyrs from 1675. Evangelicals wax eloquent about Lottie Moon and Pentecostals about William J. Seymour. No surprise, then, to find them on the ceiling of your chapel. Missionary biographies are given as edifying reading to the youngsters of even the most staunchly anti-Catholic and anti-Saint communities. And Heidi Baker in Mozambique has such a following nowadays that worried observers fret about Heidiolatry. As often as not, the term to refer to these people is decatholicized from the biblical word saint to the secular word hero, as in heroes of the faith. But this is a loss, not a gain. Things may have gone awry in certain aspects of Catholic saint veneration, but they were on to something that Protestants have forgotten to our detriment. So let's be honest, we have our saints too. Instead of hiding that fact, let's bring it out into the open and do it well. As virtually uncharted Protestant territory, the field is wide open for exploration. Luther's praise of the Antwerp martyrs, set within a still greater praise of God, offers us a template for evangelical hagiography. The hymn declares, The Spirit cannot silent be, nor can we, or should we, when we see the Spirit at work in human lives. So, for the remainder of this lecture, I'd like to build off Luther's hymn and Melanchthon's program for evangelical saint veneration to make a proposal for expanding Lutheran and, more broadly, Protestant spirituality today. In so doing, I'm explicitly trying to reopen a door that was closed due to confessional hostility several centuries ago. To begin with, it would help to define the term. I've been saying saint here without acknowledging that there are two quite different meanings attached to it. The first, the primary, and the biblical meaning of saint is just a holy one, a holy person. And in the New Testament, it isn't applied to the spectacular or the exceptional, but to all Christians without distinction. To be part of the body of Christ, to be baptized and a believer, is to be a saint. It is an external designation bestowed by contact with Christ, not the internal accomplishments of personal virtue. Whenever that meaning is forgotten, Christian saint veneration is sure to go awry. Saints are not other than all the rest of the Christian people, and all Christian people are saints. But obviously, there are and always have been Christian people who are singled out, remembered, honored, venerated, revered, whether or not they get an ST period stuck out in front of their name. That doesn't mean that they only are the ones worthy of remembrance or veneration— Nor does it mean we should try to extract favors from them or use them to shame or even excuse other Christians for being less impressive. But if these people are called saints in gratitude, in recognition of a gift that God has given them, and because they help us see the gospel lived in real time and open up the imaginative possibilities for our own Christian lives— then I think it is fitting and appropriate to honor such people with the term saint. Therefore, I would define a saint in this second sense as someone who offers Christ to others. I use the word offer deliberately, for only the Holy Spirit can give Christ and equally ensure the reception of Christ. But the means by which the Spirit does this is quite often the ministrations of other people, who by their words and deeds make Christ available to others. This is admittedly a very expansive definition, and it should surely apply to every Christian to some degree. And it is not limited by time, space, or death. Saints Perpetua and Felicitas also on your ceiling, still offer Christ through the example of their willing martyrdom. Saint Athanasius still offers Christ in his treatise on the incarnation of the word. Saint Francis of Assisi still offers Christ when we recall his embodiment of poverty and love. Saint Martin Luther still offers Christ through the small catechism studied by countless young people through the centuries. But only offering Christ could easily lead to obnoxious proselytism. So to this definition, I must append another clause. Saints are those who receive others as Christ. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. In works of mercy, we see this receiving others of, as Christ illustrated most clearly. But I also think of, for example, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, a Russian Orthodox saint who shut himself away in a hermitage for many years to struggle with his demons. At the end of it, he flung open his doors and welcomed every single person who came to see him with the words, My joy. Every person, however fallen and sinful, became a theophany for him, bearing an invisible Christ. We are saints in so far as we offer Christ to others. We are saints in so far as we receive others as Christ. Now notice I say nothing here of perfection or sinlessness. To be sure, I think there are some sins that are deal-breakers, proving the so-called offering or receiving of Christ to be a sham and a lie. George Lindbeck's famous example is the crusader who lops off the head of a Muslim while shouting, Jesus is Lord! The crusader's actions falsify his statements and expose him as an enemy, not an ally of Jesus. Likewise, we all know too painfully of preachers and pastors who have the appearance of being faithful disciples, but turn out to have wicked pastimes, preying on their flocks sexually or financially. The ambition to become saintly can be fatal to saintliness. Still, I think it's essential to emphasize that being a saint does not mean being utterly without sin. If anything, I gather from my studies, the more saintly a real saint gets in the eyes of the rest of us, the more keenly that saint is aware of his own sinfulness. Holiness is not about growing beyond the need for forgiveness. Maybe it is returning ever more willingly to repentance and taking greater and greater joy in forgiveness. Nor would I argue is saintliness being 100% free of all doubt, pain, or grief. Saint John of the Cross famously spoke of the dark night of the soul. All the reformers confessed to their moments of despair even after their evangelical awakening. Mother Teresa's diaries show an abject poverty of spirit that no one suspected during her lifetime. Sometimes being a saint is dwelling with Christ at the moment he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And staying there for a long time, longer than anyone with religious ambitions could possibly want. Sin and doubt do not disqualify because, finally, holiness is a Christocentric reality. I worry that our tendency to talk about justification and sanctification in one breath leads to the assumption that justification is Jesus' job, but then it's my job to get on with the hard work of holiness. This is only modified Pelagianism. If Christ and his spirit are not the center and actors in our sanctification, then we've reverted right back to works righteousness. But if Christ and his spirit are the engine and motor of our sanctification, then our holiness is not in our own hands and is not our own choice. Saintliness is something that happens, that is imposed from without, taking the form that God wills. Read any saint's life and you will see how little they knew what they were getting themselves into. Well, now we know how to recognize the saints. They are those who offer Christ and who receive others as Christ. What role will we have them play in the life of our churches? What kind of piety do we want to cultivate around them, not in competition with the worship reserved for God alone, but in ways that foster our worship of God alone? How can they expand our ideas about what it means to live a Christian life? Here are some ideas. If we look back on the origins of the hagiographical practice in the church, a slightly gruesome fact comes to the fore. The earliest Christians were most interested in the saints' bones. They collected them from the Colosseum or the execution block and built memorial shrines over them. It wasn't a weird death fetish that motivated this, but a very real belief in the resurrection of the dead. Bodies were no longer an evil to be escaped, but a good creation to be redeemed. Christians no longer had to fear contamination or impurity by contact with the dead, nor did they have to weep as those who have no hope. The earliest saint veneration was a very public and defiant confession of faith in the resurrection of the dead. By contrast, the average American Christian still thinks that the goal is to get the soul free of the body and flutter away up to heaven. The saints and even their bones can counteract this persistent Neoplatonic heresy in our culture. The saints can also enrich our understanding of scripture, and not only by writing commentaries on it. It often happens that a saint gets captivated by a single verse of scripture and devotes his entire life to living it out. That's what St. Anthony the Great did with Jesus' words, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. In obeying this, he inaugurated the entire monastic tradition. Saint Alexander the Sleepless spent his whole life trying to obey Jesus' command to keep awake. Your own local Alabama saint, the Lutheran evangelist and teacher Rosa Young, built tons of churches and schools for her poor black community because the words of John 14, 14 were inscribed on her heart. If you ask for anything in my name, I will do it. Instead of Writing exegesis or preaching exegesis, the saints become exegesis. Another thing the saints do is to offer an escape from the tyranny of the present. Theories of the inf- unfolding of church history quietly control the self perception of all denominations, but in the actual day to day life of our communities, church history is almost entirely absent. It's us and the Bible and not much in between. Remembering the saints counteracts both the primitivist tendency to zoom right back to the New Testament as if nothing of value happened between it and us, and the equally narcissistic focus on immediacy and relevancy for today. The absence of all the people in the body of Christ between the apostles and us leaves us spiritually lonely and intellectually impoverished. Communion with the saints of the two millennia past fills in that gap. Stories of saints thus also cause us to participate in the church in a way far beyond our own immediate physical, geographic, and linguistic boundaries. This is, in fact, the only legitimate way to transcend bodily limitations. Our own selves are not autonomous, Teflon-coated monads that exist in perfect isolation. We are ourselves precisely in the way that we incorporate and internalize the people and things around us. Above all, we are to incorporate Jesus. As Paul said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Yet even Christ is never alone, but always in fellowship with his Father and their spirit, and furthermore with all the other human beings he has redeemed. Him living in us never means the exclusion of all the others. Quite the contrary, he created us to belong to an infinite network of other people. The richer the community we open ourselves to, the richer we become ourselves all the more reason to have a wide variety of saints to be acquainted with. It's easy to get stuck molding ourselves on a model that doesn't actually fit us, or valuing only models just like us. Saints, in all their variety, increase our appreciation of the many members of the one body. Ears can't do without eyes or hands without feet. And here is a truth you can't help but discover when you study the saints. No one, not even them, does it alone. Although necessary and inevitable, there is something unjust about singling out so-and-so as a saint because she never could have gotten there without the cloud of witnesses surrounding her. Honoring a saintly person is necessarily honoring the friends, family, and church around her. She is only one little colorful fragment embedded in a much larger and infinitely more complex mosaic. A mosaic that includes you, too. Even as welcoming the saints into our lives expands and enriches our notion of the church as a community, it also reminds us of the irreducible and infinitely precious value of each individual human life. The great early modern Catholic hagiographer, Hippolyte Deleuze, lamented the tendency of the tradition to homogenize the saints, blending them into a generic gray of similitude instead of maintaining the details, defects, and delights of each saint in her own right. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.41, star differs from star in glory. If the stars, how much more the saints The church is not anything other than the people who populate it. It is very specifically this group of these people who lived at these times and in these countries and believed and acted on their beliefs in these ways. Church is not a concept. It's a people. Salvation is not a conceptual proposition, but the reclaiming of persons with a name, a face, a family, a history, a time, a place. building on both community and individuality, the saints can offer to the church healing. Not the ultimate healing of everlasting life in resurrection bodies, but the temporal reconciliation that a badly divided church needs. As an ecumenist, I have had to come face to face with the appalling behavior of Christians in the past and present. I have also had to face the apparently insurmountable difficulties that genuine differences of agreement pose to a church that is truly one. There is not much in ecumenism to feed the fires of an optimist. But you know what encourages me? The saints. They cross boundaries in a way that doctrine and ministry cannot. Non-Catholics revere Mother Teresa and non-Lutherans revere Bonhoeffer even though there is no mistaking Mother Teresa's very specifically Catholic piety or Bonhoeffer's very specifically Lutheran convictions. There is a fluidity in a human being's own history that can encompass realities that remain divided on paper and in structure. As I have looked more closely at Lutheran saints, I find plenty who strain at the limits. John Frederick Oberlin, pastor and educational reformer in Alsace and namesake of a famous American college, was as much a Moravian pietist as a Lutheran. Katharina Regina von Greifenberg, once the most widely read woman in German letters, adored Mary, the mother of Jesus. Dag Hammarskjöld, Swedish statesman killed by terrorists for his support of post-colonial nations, was as influenced by the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Akempis, and Meister Eckhart as by his Lutheran upbringing. And you see this boundary crossing all over the Christian map. William J. Seymour grew up in Catholic Louisiana. Tikhon of Zadonsk, a Russian saint, loved the spiritual works of the Lutheran Johann Arndt and the Anglican Joseph Hall. John Wesley's heart was strangely warmed while he was reading Luther's preface to Romans. Those who offer and welcome Christ are not going to be deterred by denominational walls. This we should certainly imitate. For all the ways I've depicted here of benefiting from the saints, what I hope you don't take away from this lecture is that the saints offer us good lessons in being Christian. The saints are not reducible to lessons, which could, after all, be formulated much more efficiently as brief imperative statements instead of in the mess and confusion of an entire human life. The saints are ends in themselves, just like God in whose image they are made. They are, above all, company, they are your friends, your family. They are to be enjoyed for themselves, fellow sinners who rejoice in the same salvation as you and have responded to it in a myriad of fascinating, inspiring ways. As your friends, the saints help you grow in your own understanding of the gospel because the gospel is about Christ coming to save and renew real people in all their particularity, with their grave sins and magnificent virtues in their specific times and places within their networks of friends and influences. Their lives accompany yours as you figure out how to live in the confidence of your baptism and in service to your neighbor. They help you feel less alone. That itself should be enough. Now, it would be rather silly to offer you all of this wordy theory about the saints, but no saint in particular. So I will conclude by introducing you to a new friend in the Lord of mine, not canonized by any church body, but without question one of the most remarkable saints I have ever come across. Her name is Germaine Volohavana, but she was known throughout her native Madagascar as Nenilava, which means tall mother. Neni Lava was born in 1920 to a pagan healer, and long before she had any exposure to Christianity, she'd become skeptical about her father's claims of power. At the age of 10, she began to have two recurring dreams. One was of a man robed in white who washed her feet. Another was of being lifted by a net up into heaven. At the age of 12, she started hearing a voice calling her name. She thought it must be God. Her father, perplexed by her behavior, consulted his oracle and got from it this shocking news The spirit speaking to Nenilava was the supreme God, and Nenilava herself was a queen to whom he, her father, ought to defer as if a slave. Remarkably enough, her father accepted the oracular rebuke, put aside all his idols, and told the family to obey the god that Neni Lava worshipped. In the meanwhile, Nenilava's Lava's parents had arranged for her to be married to a 60-something Lutheran catechist. To do so, she had to go through catechism classes and be baptized, which she was glad to do. She learned all her catechism lessons in a mere two weeks. After her marriage, which took place when she was 21, she received her call into ministry like this. Another catechist, who was having no luck casting an evil spirit out of a girl, was flailing. A voice told Neni Lava to do something. She went and held the girl until the evil spirit gave up, testifying that the one who is stronger than we are is coming. And with that, the girl was well again. The very next day, August 2nd, 1941, Jesus told Nenilava and two others to preach the good news to the Matitanana and the Ambohibe tribes. Nenilava agreed on the condition that Jesus would tell her what to say. He promised he would. This date is still commemorated by Malagasy Lutherans. The consecration of their exorcists takes place on August 2nd each year. It seems that Lava and Jesus were on exceptionally close terms. He not only told her what to say, but instructed her directly in 12 foreign languages so she could preach in them. At one point, she appeared to be dead for three days, but when she came back to her senses, she explained that she had been lifted up to heaven for instruction in the Gospels and recommenced her mission by preaching on 1 Corinthians 15 and the Resurrection. Soon thereafter, Neni Lava began her itinerant missionary campaign. She worked with pastors and churches to pray with people, heal and exorcise them, intervene in family disputes, and offer pastoral care. Preaching the good news and the laying on of hands with words of comfort from the Bible were the cornerstones of her ministry. She set up Tubi's, revival centers, for the care of the physically and mentally ill, which eventually turned into settlements as healed people stayed on to help with the new sick arrivals. And she kept at it until her death in nineteen ninety eight. Her story sounds like something out of the hagiographies of the apostles or the earliest missionary saints, but if then, why not now? I spent two and a half weeks in Madagascar last year, and everyone talked about Nani Lava with love and admiration. They freely acknowledge her as a prophetess, but they also make it quite clear that it was years before they were willing to acknowledge her as one. They recognize the need for slow and careful ecclesial discernment. In the end, her single-minded devotion to Jesus and her ministry of liberation for the possessed, sick, and lost convinced them. Even though she is virtually unknown outside her homeland, if you count by sheer numbers— Nenny Lava may be the most influential Lutheran woman who has ever lived. And she shows that the the development of Lutheran spirituality is far from a finished process. Nenny Lava is only one of the great cloud of witnesses. There are many saints you've heard of, but even more waiting to be discovered, who can illustrate and illuminate the gospel for you in ways beyond your present imagination. Go find these friends. Go meet your family. They are eager to join you in the praises of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to whom be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website,